I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. With our summer coming to an end, so too with it comes the end of our summer in the Psalms, which was a blessing and so thankful that we got to do that. I know I learned so much in listening to those messages and going through the life of David and the Psalms that reflected those key events of his life. But now we turn back to where we left off before the summer, and that is our verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel according to the Luke. And I am so excited about getting back in the Gospel. There's a few places that I love to preach more, and nothing intimidates me to preach more than the Gospels. Because there we are put face-to-face with Christ. I invite you all to stand up this morning for the reading of the Word. The reading of the Word this morning comes out of Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 19. We read, In these days, He, that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, He called His disciples and chose from them twelve whom He named apostles. Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, be with the reading of your word this morning and be with the teaching of it as we now enter that time. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have seen quite a bit less time last year. We started this exposition of the gospel according to Luke. We were introduced to the miraculous and fascinating birth of Christ, born of a virgin, born from above. For He would be the Savior of all mankind. We saw how every detail of His birth narrative pointed us to the reality of who He was. The Savior of mankind. The Savior of the world. The Lord of creation. The Son of God. The bread of life. We saw the baptism of Jesus, which publicly inaugurated His ministry. There at His baptism... Uh, a picture of His fulfilling all righteousness for the sake of His people. He entered into our baptism in order that we would be able to enter into His righteousness. From there, He immediately is led to the wilderness. Where there, He ensures completely and fully that He indeed will be a greater Adam a greater Son of Man, who already from the beginning has shown His victory over Satan. A foreshadow of what will be 
at the end of His ministry as well when He does the final blow of victory at Calvary's hill. We saw the beginning portions of His ministry which began with Him going to His hometown there of Nazareth and preaching one clear message. What Isaiah said of the prophet of the Messiah to come. The Lord, the Messiah, what Isaiah said, today has come to pass in me. Jesus makes very clear to His hometown that He indeed was the Messiah. That He indeed had brought the kingdom that they had so longed for for so long. And rather than being received with glory and praise, His own hometown sought to push Him off a cliff to kill Him. From there, Jesus would continue in this incredible ministry, declaring absolutely everywhere He went through His life, through His teaching, and through His deeds that the kingdom of God has come and Jesus is its ruler. Everywhere He goes, there is healing and there is salvation to the demon-possessed, to the lame, to the leper, to the sinner, even to the tax collector. Everywhere He goes, everything He touches, something happens. Salvation comes. Liberty comes. Freedom comes. Change comes. Yet also everywhere He goes, opposition arises. Opposition comes. And this is that great truth of the parable of the wheat and tares. That the same gospel that saves also hardens. That it saves those who have been given the Spirit by the Lord to receive and embrace and rejoice over the truth. And those who remain hardened in their depravity, in their own sinful rebellion, who remain there, and reject the gospel and remain hardened. What's going on with this Jesus? Well, Jesus makes it really clear. In a parable we saw him give about new wine and wineskins. What is going on? And Jesus makes very clear new wine has come, and the old wineskins can't contain it. In other words, the new covenant kingdom has come. And these new covenant realities will require a new covenant kingdom and a new covenant people with new covenant realities to fully embrace the fullness of what God is doing in Christ. And everything about that is clear. He's established a new people. Lames, lepers, paralytics, tax collectors are all invited into this kingdom. New miracles are taking place. New ways of understanding God and His teaching are happening in this new covenant kingdom. And as we saw at our very last sermon in Luke, even our understanding of what Shabbat is, needed to be understood and reconstituted in light of the person and work of this Jesus. For so many, He's changing everything. 
But it wasn't that he was changing anything at all. Is that he was fulfilling everything that was always said would be. And that was now coming in Christ. Jesus was now going to put forth the new covenant ethic in his Sermon on the Plains, which you will start looking at next week. But before doing this, he would need to do something very peculiar. By choosing what can only be described as a motley crew of men to be his apostles. Now there are four aspects of this selection of these 12 men this morning that I want to draw your attention to and see what in learning from it that we might take away as a blessing from the Scriptures. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning about this fascinating selection of the 12 is that this was a prayerful selection. A prayerful selection. You see this in verse 12, right? In these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. What an incredible picture this scene paints as Jesus is going off by Himself at night when everyone else is sleeping, when everyone else is resting, probably when He should be resting for the ministry that He's about to do. We see Him going up to the mountaintop there to commune all night with His Father in prayer. Now there are many who have posed the question, and rightfully so and understandably, why did Jesus pray? Why did this one, who by divine right and power maintains the right to all things, who is fully God Himself, why did He pray? And the answer is because in something that we often, especially... um, within kind of conservative Protestantism don't press into enough is that not only was Jesus fully God, He was fully man. He was fully man. The only difference between you and us in Christ was that He's sinless in every way when it comes to our shared humanity. He was like us in every way yet without sin. He felt pain and sorrow and sadness and happiness and joy. He knew what it was like to stub his toe. He knew what it was like to be tempted by things. He knew what it was to be tired and weak and sore and hurting. He knew all of those things. He was really man and really God. And He chose in His incarnation to primarily suppress His divinity. He did not leave it. He did not leave it behind or lose it or surrender it or give it up. He suppressed His divine nature in order that the fullness of His human nature could live in utter dependence on His Father. Just like you and I ought to live. And He demonstrates in this moment the precise manner for how humanity should commune with God. And the answer is through prayer. Specifically, private prayer. Now this passage of Jesus' night-long prayer, I think, teaches us three things about private prayer. First, it impresses upon us the necessity of private prayer. 
My friends, if ever any man born could live his life without prayer, it was Jesus. And yet, we always in the Scriptures find Him praying. Constantly praying. Constantly in prayer. And the only thing that His prayer life would have absent from ours is the need to confess sin. That's the only part of His prayer life that would have been absent that should be in ours is confession of sin. He didn't have any to confess. And yet, He is always in prayer. The Gospels demonstrate over and over again Jesus as one who constantly goes out, who leads with prayer. So if Jesus has to pray in His humanity, how much more do you? And yet it seems to be the, one of the first things of our, one of the first spiritual disciplines in our life that gets put on the back burner. Prayer is a lifeline which no person can forfeit. As Leonard Ravenhill, the great revivalist, said, no man is greater than his prayer life. The same person, Ravenhill, once asked, what is the most important qualification for a pastor? He said, callous knees. A man who lives his life on his knees in prayer to God. Christ chooses in this very pivotal moment of His ministry that before acting, before choosing these men who are going to be the foundation of His kingdom, that He sets Himself to prayer. And how much more should we follow that example? Before acting, Christ goes to praying. And yet how little we reverse that, or how often we reverse that. Where we go to acting and then pray. We act and then want God to bless all on what we're doing. As opposed to leading with prayer and letting our actions flow from the will of God as ascertained through prayer. One of the most important things when you have a decision and you're saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. Maybe you're out there getting advice from others. The first question you need to ask yourself when you have decisions that are weighing on your heart is, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Christ here shows us the necessity of private prayer. Are you going off into the solitude, spending time unplugged from the world, unplugged from the distractions, and plugging into the Lord? If you are not doing that, you will be spiritually famished. You have not because you ask not, Christ says. Secondly, this instructs us on the manner of private prayer. Notice three things. First, private prayer is best time in solitude. You just said that, right? You need to unplug. One of the best parts of being out in those woods of Louisiana despite being, being a nice steward of creation and giving chigger something to eat for a few days, was the blessing of unplugging from the world. There was no one in that line of soldiers that could have turned their phone in faster than this one. What was amazing to me, though, was the anxiety I felt when I knew we were getting our phones back. 
And all the fear began to creep back in of what's going to happen. What, what have I missed? What things am I going to have to deal with? What going on in the world that I need to just address this moment? There was a blessing in the solitude. And we find Christ Himself oftentimes taking a what we call tactical retreat to go away to fill up. Prayer time is the time that we have to top off because you can't give what you don't have. And most of us are running on empty when it comes to our spiritual life and wondering why we're always short with our kids and our spouses and everyone else around us. It's because you're empty. And you need to go and get spiritually topped off. And to do it is you've got to unplug and go plug into Him in the solitude. Secondly, private prayer must maintain an abiding devotion. Notice, he prayed all night and he said he continued in prayer with God. Now, I'm not telling you that the only kind of right prayer is stuff that's staying up all night praying. But what you see in Christ is a prayer life that abides in God. Is that what your prayer life is like? Do you find yourself abiding with Him? Continuing Him. Whether you are in that private prayer place, in that prayer closet, or just throughout the day, is there that abiding communion with God in your life? I think the reason that Jesus spent all night praying is not just because the things that He was praying for were, were difficult, and they were, we'll see. But I think it's because he delighted in the presence of his Father. You've got to remember, for all eternity, these two have been together. For all eternity, there was never a time when there was the Father and not the Son, or the Son and not the Father. The Son was eternally generated from the Father. As if the moment that the Son was, there was light. And that's it. Fully and completely and eternally emanating from that source of being. And so in this humanity, this is the first time, right, that there has been that any kind of separation in regards. And the only way to bridge the separation between God and man in our physical limitations in this life is through prayer. Prayer gives you direct access to the throne room of heaven. And will you not go there and delight the way Christ did? Thirdly, private prayer directs itself completely towards the Lord God. He prayed to God. There, demonstrated as His Father. He prays to God. Are your prayers direct? Are they focused towards God? Is your heart set upon the One who is receiving your prayers? Or are they merely you just throwing out vain vain repetitions? Have you truly settled your heart when you pray on the one who you're talking to? And that will give you a resounding new sense of meaning in your prayer life. Third, what Jesus does in this prayer is it convinces us of the efficacy of private prayer. The absolute guarantee to me that prayer works is the fact that Jesus did it. There is no other guarantee in the world greater for the fact that prayer works than the fact that Jesus chose to pray. If God did not intend on using prayer as a means of bringing about His will, He would not have set His Son to doing it. I can assure you that. But Christ prays and as we see, He will receive exactly what is needed. My friends... 
There is efficacy. There is power in prayer. It really matters. God and His sovereign decree has not only chosen the ends that He's going to bring about throughout history, but the means by which He will do that. And one of the clear means that God uses to bring about those ends is prayer. So prayer matters. God chooses to act through the means of His people's prayer life. So your prayers matter. And they will be answered. You just need to be able to be willing to receive what the answers are and know, my friends, is an answer. So is not yet. So, Jesus is praying... And we've got to ask the question, what was it that drove Jesus to this immense moment of prayer? And and there are three things, right? First, and, and, and what we'll say is kind of one of the more significant ones, is that Jesus has come up to the mountaintop to prepare himself for the exposition that he's about to give. Which... In Luke, is called the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount. They are not the same sermon. But they have the same, excuse me, same content. Duh. This is why there's some differences between the two. It's not because Jesus is out there preaching different things or there's contradictions. It's that Jesus is teaching the same same message lots of different times. Why? There's only one kingdom ethic. And Christ is preparing his heart to lay forth what will be the ethic that his people should abide by while living in his kingdom. We'll see that in the Beatitudes. Right? So Jesus goes up to the mount to receive the exposition for what will be the law of his people. Where does this come from? Where did Moses go to receive the law? Up to the mountain. Receive the law in order to bring it down to give His people what would be the governing ethos for the Old Covenant. Christ, the greater Moses, goes up to the mount to receive what will be the governing ethos for the New Covenant people. So that's the first reason why He goes to pray. Secondly, He goes to pray in order for the Father to reveal to Him whom He was to choose to be His twelve apostles. And you may ask, didn't Jesus know? Well, in His divine nature, possibly once, He suppressed that, He's in His humanity. But this seeking His Father's will on who He should choose is actually more and beyond just the fact that Jesus is human in in this reality, in His incarnation. This is actually the manner in which the relationship within the Trinity works. So what you're seeing in this prayer of the Father giving to the Son, whom the Son will will place where He needs within His kingdom, is actually an intra-Trinitarian picture that happened and has happened since eternity past. The Father chooses and gives to the Son. The Son redeems and fills with the Spirit. The Spirit fills and seals to guarantee the accomplishment of the will of the Father and the work of the Son. This is that inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption that was made amongst the persons of the Godhead in eternity past. So when Christ goes to pray, 
He is receiving from His Father those to whom He is to choose to be His apostles. And that will be made clear in verse 13. But it's important to note that this manner of the Father choosing sinners out of His creation and giving them to His Son, who then calls out, redeems, and commissions, is not a singular act to the apostles, but rather is the means by which He has redeemed and called out and chosen and sealed every one of us who are His disciples. We have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. And you see this repeated throughout the language of Jesus. And the Apostle John really gets to the heart of this as he outlines it in Christ's teaching of this this intra-Trinitarian covenant of the Father giving to the Son, the Son going to save, and then the Spirit sealing. And we see this in John chapter 6, verse 37-40, this Father-Son covenantal relationship. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so there's the clear teaching there in John 6. Everyone that the Father gives me will be those who will look upon me and believe. Because everyone who looks to me was given to me by the Father. And this is the guarantee of what I will do for them. I will not lose one of them. This is one of the greatest passages on the assurance of eternal security, the perseverance of the saints. It is because your salvation was decreed in eternity past and guaranteed towards eternity future. All because of the covenant of redemption made in the Godhead. John chapter 17, Jesus gets at this even more. This is His prayer. Once again, Jesus praying. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus talking about this inter-Trinitarian relationship that if you have come to Christ, it was because the Father gave you to the Son. The Son chose you and called you out to fulfill the Father's will. And as we see now in Paul, the Spirit then acting in accordance with the Trinitarian will and purpose seals you and guarantees your eternal life. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the best passage in the Bible that shows you the three persons all at work in this inter-Trinitarian covenant of redemption to bring salvation to sinners. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. This is all one sentence in the Greek. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's eternity past that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. Jump to verse 13. Here we see the spirit in him. You also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. From start to finish, your salvation is the product of a triune God at work in and through you. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. Eternity past to eternity future. That is your testimony, dear Christian. And what is it all for? To the praise of His glory and grace. That's it. Why did He do it? To the praise of His glory and grace. That's the answer. There is no other answer. Nothing about you, nothing about me, nothing about anybody else that it will ever be saved in heaven. When we're all in heaven, there will be a single testimony. He did it. He did it. And He gets the praise. That's it. That's it. So this is what he's praying. He's receiving in this inter-Trinitarian relationship. And lastly, the final reason that I think this prolonged prayer happened to the Father was that not only was Jesus choosing who would be His apostles, Jesus was being told by the Father whom would be His betrayer. Now you think about that. Jesus is being told for the first time in this inter-Trinitarian, in His humanity, the one, the one of His disciples who is going to be His betrayer. When we see Judas's name in the list, the reality of His betrayal is already noted. Never is there any time in the Gospels where Jesus is said to have not known who was going to betray Him. Every time it's mentioned, he knew who was going to betray him. For he knew the one who was going to betray him. He knew the one who was going to do this. He always does. And yet, you know what's amazing to me is at the end when he says, for one of you is about to betray me, no one else had a clue who it was. And you know what that tells me? It doesn't tell me that just Judas played the game well. It tells me that Jesus loved them all the same so perfectly that no one could tell any difference. There was never anybody like, I've seen the way he treats Judas. It's totally him. In this sermon that we're about to learn starting next week, Jesus is going to teach one of his most prominent kingdom ethics. Love your enemy. And no one has exemplified it better than Jesus. And I think in this moment, as he is praying and receiving the knowledge that it will be Judas who is going to betray him, he is praying also in His humanity, which was prone to weakness and prone to temptation. He is praying to the Father for the strength in utter dependence that He will love Judas well. And He does that. He does that. It also makes something else very important. 
The fact that from the very beginning, Judas was chosen and known to be the betrayer makes this very clear. You need to hear this today. When God calls, He never makes a mistake. Judas wasn't an accident. Judas wasn't like, oh, we didn't see that coming. God wasn't up there going, sorry, Jesus, I wish I could have helped. I don't know. There was no mistakes in choosing Judas. He was placed there for the exact purpose that he fulfilled. Jesus knew the very moment he said, Judas, you will be my apostle. He knew in his heart that Judas was also going to be his betrayer. And this is important because it makes very clear here that the moment Jesus chose Judas, in reality, Jesus was saying, I choose the cross. Think of that. Think about that night long high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Every part of Jesus' humanity would not would have wanted to run, not from the cross. It wasn't nails that gave him fear. It was the fact that he was going to drink the full cup of his father's wrath for you and me. And if you don't think you'd want to run from that, get out of here. I want to run from it for just the thought of my own sin, not less the countless multitudes that Christ bore it for. So when he chose Judas, he made it very clear, I'm choosing Calvary. I'm setting into play what will make sure that I go to Calvary. And I will love the one who will bring it to me with perfect love. That's what he chose. And it is no wonder he prayed so long. As the morning rose, Jesus now fully strengthened and clear as to whom he would choose to be his 12 disciples, summoned all of his disciples to come and meet him. And here we see that this was also a pivotal selection. It was a pivotal selection. Verse 13, he says, And when a day came, he called his disciples, chose from them 12 whom he had named apostles. Now, Jesus had amassed a number of followers at this point, which was very common of teachers in the ancient world. Notice here that there is two distinct groups that he he chose from his disciples, his 12 apostles. So Jesus has several disciples, several men and women who are following him in faith. And these apostles were a part of them. They were a part of that group that had just been following Jesus and, and learning from him and growing from him. But in this pivotal selection, Jesus was not merely just choosing 12 henchmen or key followers to pass on the legacy when he knew he would die, like most teachers did. No, Jesus was establishing the foundation pieces of a new covenant Israel that he had come to recreate. In Scripture, the number 12 is the symbolic number of God's people. 12 is the number of God's people. The foundation of the Old Covenant was built upon the patriarchal promises made to who? The 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob. But the Old Covenant was both temporary and typological in its purposes. In other words, it was to be fulfilled in temporary 
and pointed to, typological, Christ. The coming of Christ. Now that Christ had come, He had come to establish a new covenant kingdom, which would have to be built upon a new foundation. A foundation that He would lay through His twelve apostles. A new twelve patriarchs that He will establish a new kingdom through. And that is precisely what we see throughout the New Testament. In the very closing of Revelation, we are given a picture of the glorified church coming down as what? A new Jerusalem. And we read this description of her. Revelation 21 verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were what? The twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, Jesus in this selection is picking those who will be the foundation of the new Jerusalem, the new covenant Israel, the new covenant people of God that He is going to create. This is a pivotal selection. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to Gentiles here. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul in Ephesians 2 is talking about how believing Jews and believing Gentiles have been made one new people in Christ. And they are referred to as the singular household of God. Not households, household of God. He says earlier, they have made one new man in them. Now this household of God, we are taught, is built on the foundation of the apostles, new covenant, prophets, old covenant, of which the cornerstone of both is who? Christ. All the old covenant pointing to the cornerstone Christ. All the new covenant flowing from the realities of Christ. And thus, all the old and new covenant of your Bible is grounded and attached to one person, Jesus And this is why the title Jesus gives them is so important. The Greek word for disciple is mathetus. It simply means student or learner or pupil. That's what all His disciples are. Every single one of us. The moment you became a disciple of Christ, you became a pupil of the Master. You have come to sit at the feet of Christ and to hear how we are to live in light of His teaching. But these are not to just be mathetas anymore. They are to be apostles. Apostles. And that word apostle, it maintains the idea of being a special delegate. A commissioned representative. Chosen to speak or act on behalf of a king. The apostles of Christ would be granted a unique authority given only to them to speak and act on behalf of Jesus as His inspired representatives. Only they receive this title. They whom Christ hand-selects Himself. Notice, in Scripture, and even with the selection of Matthias, the casting of the die is clear. This was a sovereign selection by the Lord. No one said, I'd like to be an apostle. They were hand-selected by the sovereign choice of Christ. 
No one gets to make themselves an apostle. You've got to be hand-selected by Christ. And guess what? They're all dead. There isn't any more. And anyone else who calls himself an apostle might just wear the title fraud. Because that's what they are. There are no living apostles of Christ. They died with the death of John. To reject these apostles was to directly reject Christ himself. They functioned in an absolutely unique role of the church that was unique to them alone. No minister in the church today has the authority of an apostle, nor do any of the great theologians of history. Every one of us, every pastor, teacher, preacher, evangelist, missionary, theologian, every one of us are under the apostolic authority of the church. And we merely build upon the foundation that they solely laid. A building can have only one stable foundation. And thus the ministry of the apostles is non-repeatable. There are no more apostles after the death of the last of them. And with these selection of the twelve, Jesus was now not only declaring that the new covenant kingdom had come, He was declaring that it was now going to be built. In other words, I'm not coming to start something and put it on hold for later. It's getting built right now. I'm not waiting to a future dispensation to do it. I'm not going to pick back up and start on later. Right now with the selection of these men, I am going to begin building my promised new covenant kingdom. And he has been building it ever since upon the foundation that they laid. This is one of the most pivotal moments in history. Christ was choosing those men who would build the foundation of His church. So surely, these men would have had to have been some of the greatest to ever walk on earth, right? I mean, just the best of the best. I mean, scholars, elite thinkers, profound leaders, bold and courageous, strong in every way, the pinnacle, Alexander the Great. This is what they had to be, right? Well, not quite. And we see that this was a peculiar selection. A peculiar selection. When we look at the list of these names, we do not find rock stars. We do not find Alexander the Greats. We do not find uh, Nostradamus as much as people tried to make John be that. It's not who we find. We don't find elite scholars and thinkers of the ancient world. We don't find profound military generals and rulers. We find ordinary nobodies. See, they were. They're nobodies. Here we get one of the four lists in verses 14 through 16 of the twelve apostles. Here, the first name, who is the name found in the beginning of every list of the apostles. There are four total in the New Testament. And the first name is always Simon or Peter's. Simon, the Lord called Peter. Peter meaning rock. Simon would be the rock. Peter is always listed first because Peter was chosen by the Lord to be the first among equals. He was to be the leader, the chief spokesperson of the twelve. Now, he has no supremacy over them. That is why I say, just like a plurality of elders where there is a lead pastor among them, they are all equal in their authority. 
But one of them is to be the first among equals. To stand as, as the leader among them. And that is what Peter was. There's no such thing as petrine supremacy or infallibility like Rome teaches. It simply denotes the position that, G, that Peter was given as the leader of the twelve. Now, we learn a lot about Peter in the Scriptures. Peter lived by the seat of his pants. He was bold, but emotionally driven as a leader who sometimes let his fears get the best of him. You don't know what you're getting with Peter. You get some high highs with Peter and you get some low lows. But he's always the first to go. He's the guy that's like, I'll try the rope swing. I know it doesn't look safe. I'll do it. He's that guy. That's Peter. The first to go. The first to do. The first to act. But given to his emotions quite a bit as a leader early on. We know that Peter was not infallible. He himself would need to be corrected for his treatment of the Gentiles by the Apostle Paul. So he wasn't infallible or anything like that. He was a man. But he was to be the leader of the twelve. Next, we have Andrew. Andrew, who is almost always referred to in the New Testament as Peter's brother. As Simon's brother. Andrew is always overshadowed by Peter. Even though it was Andrew who told Peter about Jesus first. But Andrew spends his entire ministry living in the shadow of his brother. What's amazing is you never see like John, the brother of James, or James, the brother of John. They just, James and John. But Andrew, everybody goes, oh, that's the brother of Peter. Maybe you are someone who in the calling God has given you seems to always find yourself ministering behind the scenes or in the shadow of others. If so, take heart. You have a lot of con- in common with Andrew who was first and always there for Christ who was used by an incredible purpose though he was overshadowed by his brother. I, I tell you, one of the most common people who get overshadowed in the ministry are pastor's wives. Because that's exactly what they're called. Oh, that's the pastor's wife. The pastor's wife. So they come with expectations, but no identity. To all of those who have ever lived in that place, who minister in the shadows, who are referred to more by what they do or who they are, than hear that blessed reality. Andrew knows, and yet Andrew was faithful to the end. He didn't have to be in the limelight. He just had to learn for the Lord. And he did it faithfully. Then we have the two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the two men who are zealous for Christ and for His ministry, so much so that Jesus gives them the name Sons of Thunder, ready to bring down uh, lightning from heaven to destroy the enemies of Christ. I know a lot of young pastors. I was a son of thunder early on. But what's fascinating about these two brothers is that James would be the first apostle to die and John the last. These two brothers would be the bookends of the apostolic ministry of Christ. Fascinating. Then there's Philip, just an ordinary man from Bethsaida. And if you're one who oftentimes struggles to understand what the world God is doing in your life or what the world Jesus is doing, then Philip is a kin spirit with you. Every time we see Philip actually speaking in Scriptures, he's always questioning Jesus. 
So like, what are we doing? John 14. So how are we going to go to the Father again? How does that work out? Philip's the inquisitive. He wants to know, but he struggles. Like, I'm not quite seeing how this works. I kind of need to know a little bit more. If that's you, if you find yourself kind of struggling, you see what God's doing in your life often, wanting to know more, needing a little bit more evidence, needing a little bit more to walk in faith, then then you have a a, a faithful spirit in Philip. And then there's Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. Scripture does not have much to say about him, but Bartholomew would go on to preach the gospel into parts of India and modern day Armenia. Matthew, also known as Levi, the former tax collector, the man considered a traitor by Israel and a puppet by Rome, a man who was once despised and yet Christ entered into that tax booth and changed his life, not just to become a follower of Jesus, but now an apostle. A tax collector becoming a foundation stone for the new covenant Israel. Think of that. What a difference Christ makes. Following him, Thomas, who I believe has been wrongly dubbed as Doubting Thomas. Because when you look at the death of Christ, every one of his apostles doubted. They all doubted. We were told that. Thomas just gets a bad rap because he wasn't there the first time. So he's like, hey, I'm not going to believe unless I see and touch the the wounds. But Thomas, when you actually see him in Scripture, is not a doubter. I I would better dub him a faithful pessimist. He always thinks the worst case scenario is going to happen. But he goes. After in John 14, when Jesus says, I'm turning back to Jerusalem. You know what Thomas says? Let us go and die with him. That's the pessimist he was. He's going to die. We're going to have to go die with him. But let's go. The faithful pessimist. So maybe sometimes you find yourself always seeing the glass half empty. But you show up and go anyways because you know that's where Christ wants you. Then Thomas is a good kin spirit with you. Then James, the son of Alphaeus, known as James the Less, We have little about him in Scripture other than the fact that tradition has him going to be a missionary in Egypt. Ten, we have Zimon, the former zealot. Zealot, these militant group of Israelites who trained with the belief that one day the Messiah would come and they would be his army to root out the Roman Empire. So they trained like special forces. To prepare to be the mighty men of the greater David. And Simon was one of them. But notice, it says in the text, Simon who was called the zealot. Why? Because when Christ got a hold of him, he was no longer what he used to be. Through Jesus the Messiah, Simon would bring about the Lord's kingdom and bring down the other kingdoms of this world, but not with a sword of steel, rather with a sword of the Spirit. Next, we have Judas, son of James, also known as Thaddeus. Little, like I said, Scripture does not give us much, but tradition has it that he would go to parts of Syria and Libya to be a missionary for Christ. And then lastly, the position he always holds, the last in the list, Judas Iscariot, who would be the betrayer. Right Now, Matthias would ultimately be 
the, the true choice of God here to be a part of the twelve. Paul maintaining a special and unique place as an apostle because his apostolate was directly focused towards the Gentile world. These 12 men, there are things about them with the exception of Judas that all of them would share. One, they were all Israelites because to fulfill the covenant promise of the old, the new covenant kingdom had to be built on a foundation of ethnic Israel. So that's why these 12 men are Israelites. Secondly, right, they would all die terrible deaths for Christ. They would all die terrible deaths for Christ. And the third thing that they all shared was they were nobodies. They're nobodies. They were nobodies. Nothing significant about these men at all. If anything, people, you shouldn't choose for this. Now, before moving on to go with that, I want to just briefly ask this question. What, why in the world did Judas need to be selected as, a, as an apostle in order to be a betrayer? Isn't that a question that's begged? Like he still could have been a disciple and still been the betrayer. Why be an apostle? I chewed on that a lot this week and two suggestions came to my mind that I submit to your consideration. First, is that it can be said, if ever there was one who could level a legitimate accusation against Jesus, it would be the ones who were the most intimately close to Him. Judas was there for the fullness of Christ's ministry. He was there in his intimate circle. He knew him closely and personally. He knew every word he preached and every deed that he did. If ever there was anyone who could say, he's a fraud, I saw it all, I saw behind the scenes, it would be his betrayer. And yet, the Lord would put the betrayer right next to him. So that when at the end, is there any accusation which could be brought against him, even Judas himself would not have a true one to bring. So that's the first, to just go clear to the realities of the perfections of Christ. That he could put his, his greatest enemy right in the camp with him, and there would still be no accusation that could be leveled against him. Anselm of Canterbury, the church father of the 4th century, says this, Judas has chosen that the Lord might have an enemy among his domestic attendants. For only a perfect man has no cause to shrink from the observation of a wicked man who has seen all his ways and heard all his words. The second reason I think the Lord appointed Judas as an apostle is to make clear to all his followers that your spiritual standing with God is never based upon your religious standing with men. Judas was an apostle. He bore the title. And he was not a true believer in Jesus. Think of this. Ordination is not regeneration. And that is why there are countless stories of pastors and religious leaders who fall away. Because ordination does not equate to regeneration. Your title does nothing to tell me about your standing in heaven. As John says in 1 John 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us. 
That is why we must never make idols of men. But only embrace and learn from them when and where their lives and teaching make much of Christ and align with His Word. Hear me all, dear friends. You can be a pastor, elder, deacon, missionary, teacher, or anything else in between. But, you don't, but if you don't have a saving relationship with Christ, if you have not been born again by grace through faith, then you are on the path to perdition. I don't care how well you play the position in church. If your heart is not right with God, you are a child of wrath. Judas's heart would be exposed in his betrayal. But what he meant for evil, God always meant for good. You may ask, how can I know that I'm no Judas? And Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. First, that refers to the fruit of the Spirit. But there are also three distinct attributes that mark the true believer of Christ according to Scripture. First, a supreme love for Christ over all else. Secondly, a sacrificial love for others. And thirdly, a perseverant faith that remains unto the end. Those are the three marks of a true believer in Christ. Does that fruit mark your life today? As much as we love these apostles, there wasn't anything that we would say that these men were perfect for the position. They lacked any and every qualification that man would say would be needed for such an immense calling. These men were poor, silver and gold we do not have, ordinary and uneducated, and in almost every case having professions that were considered the lowest or most shameful in the culture of that day. You can imagine not only several of Christ's disciples, but even these men themselves, after they were called, were like, what is he thinking? He's totally going to wake up tomorrow and change his mind. Once he like really realizes that he just chose me to do this, he's totally going to take that back. I'm not even going to get settled in. You can imagine they thought that. My friends, I want you to know there was only one reason that these men were qualified to hold this most important of positions. It's because Christ chose and called them to it. That was the qualification. What was the qualification? Christ called them to it. And that was true for them in their calling, and it's true for every one of us in ours. What qualified you to be a disciple of the King of the universe was that Christ chose you and called you to it. That's your qualification. I had no business becoming the pastor of Hillside six years ago. And guess what? Six years later, I got no business being the pastor of Hillside Baptist Church. What's the answer then? Christ called and chose me for it. That's it. That's it. I have no business being here and I live with that reality every day. But Christ called me for it and I can't do anything else but it. The apostles did not choose their calling and neither do we. Christ places us right where He wants us and wherever Christ calls you, that's where you belong until He calls you elsewhere. You may feel unqualified. You may feel like there's no way I can do this or that ministry. But I want you to know if Christ is calling you to it, He will ensure that you have everything you need to faithfully accomplish everything He's called you to. I can imagine these men felt overwhelmed by the calling they had just received. 
And maybe you're feeling overwhelmed today by something that God is pressing on your heart. But Christ being the incredible shepherd that He is now immediately demonstrates to these men and to each and every one of us why we never need to worry about our weaknesses and our inadequacies when we are living in service to Him. Because we see that this was a purposeful selection. Verse 17 through 19. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for the power came out from him and healed them all. The timing of Jesus' calling of the twelve was purposeful. It was purposeful. First, one of the primary attributes necessary to be an apostle was that you would need to be an eyewitness of all that Christ did and taught. That was one of the supreme qualifications when they chose Matthias. He must have been with us in all things and saw all that Christ taught and did. So they had to see all that He taught and did. Every word we have in the New Testament is directly attributed to the witness and words written or spoken by these apostolic eyewitnesses. And even Paul himself, who would be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, would refer to himself as the least of all the apostles. Why? Because he hadn't been there since day one. Here, these apostles are seeing Christ in incredible power to heal and make whole with a single touch. Secondly, they are learning through his teaching, beginning in a sermon next week, we'll see, Exactly what it is and how his people should live within his kingdom. Therefore, they are learning themselves how and what to teach. Which is what they will do as his designated messengers. But I think there's another purpose in the timing of this selection. Right before he would go down, take them with him, and do all of this healing and incredible power witnessing and, and transform, transformative work, miraculous work. And the answer is found in that little statement of verse 19 when it says, And the power came out from him. That's what these men and what you and I need to see today. There is no doubt these men were thinking, he's going to change his mind when he learns more about me. I don't do anything right. I'm a nobody. I don't speak well. I mess up everything I touch. How can I do anything that this Jesus calls me to do, especially this? And here was the answer that they and you and I and everyone else who follows Jesus needs to understand with absolute clarity. The power comes from him. He's where the power comes from, not you. That's the only hope any of us have as parents discipling our children and church ministry in evangelism. Anywhere that you are serving the call of God on your life, the only hope that you have is this. The power comes from Him. It comes from Him. And that, my friend, is what they needed to learn and depend on and what you and I need to learn to depend on. I just need to be faithful to go. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the sufficiency. 
He has factored in all my failures, my shortcomings, and inadequacies. When Moses stands there and goes, but I I don't talk well. What does God say? Who made your mouth? Don't you think I'm aware of every inadequacy you may or may not have or you're just trying to use an excuse? The power comes from me, Moses, not you. If you've ever been blessed by a single word of this ministry, it came from Jesus. That's where the power came from. We're just vessels in all of this. Vessels to be used. But Pastor Blake, I just can't do it. You're right. Neither could any of those men but Christ. You're right, you can't do it. They couldn't do it. I can't do it. But Christ. And His power and strength is sufficient for you to do anything He's calling you to today. Yes, God gives us gifts and strengths to live in mission for Him. But the day you start depending more on your gifts than upon His grace, be prepared to fall on your face. The day you start thinking it's about my strengths or gifts or I want to only do callings that, that I know that I'm going to be good at, get ready for it to fall flat. Because there is one key to being a faithful minister wherever God's calling you. And it's this, complete and total dependence on Him. That's the, that is the, what, you want the secret to successful ministry? Total dependence on Jesus. That's it. I got nothing else for you. That's a one sentence book. Total dependence on Jesus. Like the apostles, you've been chosen and called for a purpose in Christ. And no matter how overwhelming that purpose may feel to you right now, it is His power that will equip and carry you through it faithfully into the end. I want to close with four things here. Some takeaways from this lesson today of the selection of the twelve. First, we are to lead with prayer in all things. If Christ did it, you better do it. Don't plan then pray. Pray then plan. Lead with prayer in your marriage. Lead with prayer in your parenting. Lead with prayer in your decisions. Every decision that is made within your home, let it lead and start with prayer. Prayer is the place where we are strengthened and empowered and given discernment and wisdom how to move forward. And if you want power to be in your parenting and power to be in your, 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 your marriage and power to be in any and everything that you're stepping into, it will never come where there is no prayer. So lead with prayer in all things. Secondly, your identity was transformed the moment Christ called you to Himself. I don't care who you were. You are now who Christ calls you to be. I don't care if you were the rebel as a kid. I don't care if you were the the crazy guy, the bad person, the the nagging narcissistic person, the the person who lived a, a mischievous life, a wayward life. I don't care who you were. I care who Christ has called you to be because that is your identity. Christ is the single determiner of our identity, not us. Not us. Thirdly, No calling of Christ is ever insignificant. I don't care if you're a nursery worker, a groundskeeper, stay-at-home mom, a dad, 
He's faithfully trying to lead his kids. A youth minister, a pastor, a missionary, a kitchen worker, a nursery worker, a children's church leader, a deacon, an elder, a volunteer. Your calling is as significant as the one who called you. There is no such thing as an insignificant calling. And though your ministry may be in the shadows of the eyes of men, it is always in the light of your Father's eyes. So wherever God's calling you today, please hear me, it's not insignificant. It is so vitally necessary to the health of the church and the advancement of the kingdom. And then lastly, every individual calling is for the purpose of corporate blessing. The apostles gained nothing individually for being called apostles. They already had heaven. They were followers of Jesus. They surrendered Him with the exception of Judas. And we are talking about His unique and special purposes. But the rest of these men were followers of Jesus. They believed upon Him. They had surrendered their life to Him. They were going to follow Him and trust Him. They had saving faith. They were His. They were not gaining heaven by taking on this title. They gained no riches of the world. You know what they gained? Painful, torturous deaths. Why? Because their calling had nothing to do for them individually. They had already received their reward in Christ. Their calling was for corporate blessing. Because of the foundation of faithfulness they laid in the inspired Word of God that we have with us, their faithfulness blessed us. God does not give you any individual calling so that you can be self-indulgent. He gave it for the purpose of corporate blessing. And everything that you have that is not brought forth, every calling that you've been given that is not being shared for the purpose of corporate blessing is merely bringing about a corporate robbing. We lack when we are not all faithfully exercising our calling together. Because every one of you have so much more that I need than I can ever give to you myself. The vision that Christ has chosen called us to at Hillside Baptist Church is to proclaim the excellencies of the triune God and to create a multi-generational community of disciples who learn, love, and live out the mission of Christ. And we need you to be precisely what Christ has called you to be in order for us to be all that Christ has called us to be. My friends, we may seem small and significant here on this little hillside of Anchorage, Alaska. And that would be true, except for one important truth. The power belongs to Christ. So I want to ask you today, where is Jesus calling you individually to join the mission of this church body to declare the gospel, disciple the community, and display the light of Christ? The kingdom has come in Christ. Its foundation has been laid by the apostles. And now it advances into a dying world that needs salvation. And we have the answer. We have the commission. And we have the power only because we have the Christ.
So walk in faith, my friend. Wherever it is that Christ is calling you. Do not be overwhelmed. He will give you exactly what you need to do it. And be ready to be used by Him in ways you never could imagine in your home, in your community, and in this church. The apostles are the best testimony that this is possible. For through this motley crew of men, Jesus turned the world upside down. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for the assurance that You give us in the calling. That we know that it all comes from You. Both the calling itself and the power to to live it out. Lord, I pray today, if there's been someone here who's been struggling, who's been wanting to step in faith, a ministry that you've put, whatever it is, uh, an outreach to the community, um, a ministry here to the kids, ministry to men, ministry to women, whatever ministry that is, kitchen ministry, benevolent ministry, what, whatever it is, teaching ministry, Lord, whatever it is that you've been placing on their heart and they have felt inadequate or weak or, or not ready or afraid to step into that, let them see God. It's you who gave the calling and it's you who gives the power. It's you who brings the increase. We never need to struggle with our inadequacies because you, if you call us to it, you will see us through it. So Lord, help us today walk in faithfulness to the calling you've given us. Not walking in fear or feelings of our inadequacy, but just feelings of thanksgiving. That we get to be vessels, instruments of mercy, used by you in the building and advancing of your kingdom. Lord, it's all about you. It's all because of your grace. And so God, help us now as we continue to walk in faithfulness for everything you are calling us to be as a church. Help us to be everything you're calling us to be as individuals as well living out the calling you've given us and being faithful to the day you call us home, knowing that it is you who seals us and guarantees that we will preserve to the end. We love you, Lord. We thank you. God, you are so good. Help us now walk in faith as we build our life upon you that it is you who gives us everything we need to sustain us in the calling that you have chosen us for. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.